All right, Isaiah 5. Um, we're, we're taking the slow trudge through the book of Isaiah together. Um, we're going to get through this whole chapter. This chapter could probably be a couple of sermons, two or three sermons in its own right, but um, we're, we're just going to tackle it all. Um, and, and what we're going to do, just as we kind of set up the tone for this, we need to first go to 2 Corinthians 6 verse 1. Uh, just that one verse, I think, is going to help set up the tone for where we're going to go. And in 2 Corinthians 6, the Apostle Paul says something kind of strange. He says, We appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. Now, that is a strange statement if, you, if we think about it. He's, Paul's saying, Don't receive the grace of God the free gift of God's mercy in vain. Uh, that, that leads to some questions. Um, one, how, how in the world can God's grace be received in vain? How, how in the world does it, how can we do that? Because God's grace, by definition, is his all-forgiving kindness to us in Jesus Christ. So how could we receive that in vain? I mean, Grace itself, we, we know the Bible teaches this, that it compensates even for our half-hearted responses to God. So uh, what, what is Paul's point here? What is he trying to remind us of um, as he tells us not to receive it in vain? Well, here's where I think he's going. He's urging us to not receive the grace of God in vain because God's grace not only accepts us, and it does that, it accepts us, but it also transforms us. And what can happen is if we want God's acceptance without God's transformation, we're receiving the grace of God in vain. And really, Christianity at that point becomes worthless. Um, what God's grace does is it transforms our hearts. And if we don't want the transformation, we don't want his grace. And that's, that's really the, the clear a message of what we're going to see in Isaiah chapter 5. Isaiah 5, though it was written in a different time, in a different context to a different group of people than ourselves, um, we, we see that they had everything that they could ever need from God. They had his word, they had the law, they had the historical uh, relationship that he had with their forefathers. They had everything that they needed from him but they did not have hearts for him. So the grace that he extended to them didn't lead to their transformation. That's what we're going to see. So let's look at this. Um, we're going to spend most of our time this morning in the first seven verses. The first seven verses are going to be dealing with uh, the message of God's grace extended to his people. And then the rest of the chapter really is going to just deal with their rejection of that, their rebellion in that. Um, and we're not going to spend as much time on the, the latter part of the chapter, um, but we really need to, but we'll, we'll go, we'll do a quick flyover of it. And we're going to spend most of our time on the first seven verses. So let's read these. Um, this is going to be it's going to have a little bit of a different tone than uh, Isaiah has uh, up to this point. Up to this point, he's been pretty confrontational, uh, very um, kind of angry even. And here it's like this abrupt switch. Look at what he says. 
It says, let me sing for my beloved the love song concerning his vineyard. So Isaiah is setting this up. Everything he's going to say is a love song that God is writing to his people that Isaiah will will, uh, perform for them, I suppose. We don't have the music, so I don't know what it sounded like, but we have the words. And uh, here's what it says. It says, My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones, and he planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it, he hewed out a wine vat in it and he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. So we'll stop there and just talk about what's happening because this is, this is what God is doing to describe his grace to his people. He's using the analogy of a vineyard. He's using the analogy of a vineyard and he's saying here, here's what he's got. He's got this vineyard on this beautiful, perfect hill. This, this hill has all the right soil. It's fertile. It's ready to go. It's, it, he, he's going to plant this vineyard in the best possible place. He's going to, in verse 2, he says he dug that field, that hill, and he cleared it of stones. He's, he's getting rid of all the obstacles that are in the way of a, of a good crop uh, of, of grapes. He's taking all the stones out of the soil. He planted it with choice vines, not mediocre vines, not just, okay, let's hope that this grows. He picked the best possible vines to start with and he, he planted those vines. Then he builds a watchtower, it says, in the midst of it and he hewed a, uh, a wine vat in it. So he's got the protection established here, right? This, this um, watchtower is there to protect the vineyard from animals and from uh, would-be robbers. It, he's got the, the vat of, uh, for the wine to store the wine once it's all ready to go. He's got all the protections in place. So everything's done. Right? He did everything he could possibly do. And then he goes out and he looks for his grapes. He's, he's just waiting for the fruit. He's waiting for the fruit. And what does he find? It says he, it, these these uh, vines that he planted yielded wild grapes. Now, the ESV says wild grapes. Other translations have other uh, words here. Um, some say worthless grapes. Uh, some, actually, really what the meaning of it is in the Hebrew is rancid. Uh, rancid grapes. Just grapes that are worthless, completely disgusting, uh, grotesque, like you would never use them for wine or for anything else. And that's what was produced. The fruit of the, of the vineyard that God planted did not produce the fruit that he intended. It, plant, it, it actually produced fruit that was, that was uh, gross and rancid and wild and unusable. So then verse three, God goes on to ask some questions about this. He says, And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, Judge between me and my vineyard. Let's, let's take a look at this. What, let's judge between us. What more was there for me to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? God asked the question, what else could I have done? What more could I have done? The answer is nothing. He couldn't have done anything more. He did everything right. Everything that should have produced good vibrant grapes for for harvest 
did not, it did not yield those grapes. And the, but there was nothing else that God could have done. He says, when I looked for it um, to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? Verse five, and now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge and it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste. It shall not be pruned or hoed and the briars and thorns will grow up. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed, for righteousness, but behold, an outcry. So God is speaking to the people of Jerusalem and Judah in the days of Isaiah. He says, you're the vineyard. You're the vineyard that didn't produce the grapes that you were supposed to produce. The fruit of your life is not what it should be. And so God does what he has to do. And he says, you know what? I'm going to take the the vineyard's protections away. I'm not going to care for it. I'm going to let it be trampled. I'm going to let it be devoured. I'm going to let it be made into a waste. And I'm not going to let the rain fall on that. And basically what he's doing is he's describing to them the coming judgment that will be occurring in their lives um, as we know historically happened through the, uh, the exiles, um, through Assyria and through Babylon. Um, God had to get his people to a place of repentance and he did that through judgment, through making them very uncomfortable, through making them lose virtually everything they had. And so this was not because God is some vindictive God. It's because he's a loving God. It's because he cares for his people and he wants them to be transformed. But, but they're not being transformed by all the things that he's offered to them. And so he's going to uh, make their lives difficult so that they have nowhere else to turn but him. And, and that's really what we're seeing in, in the remaining part of the text. It's it's the judgment of God over the people and, and what they've done. It, it goes on to describe six different types of fruit that they, their lives have produced. And as we read through it, we'll see that um, they're not innocent little people. They're, they've gone out of their way to be rebellious and sinful. And, and so what they're getting isn't undeserved. It's thoroughly deserved and God is doing what he's doing as a uh, result of his love for them to draw them back. Um, so let's just quickly go through that um, because I really want to spend the rest of our time revisiting this idea of a vineyard uh, and how God, why God uses that analogy. But first we need to work through the text. Um, and we're not going to be able to read this all word for word just for the sake of time. But he, there, there are in uh, verse 8 through um, 23, there are six different outcomes or fruit or whatever you want to call it uh, of their rebellion. And, and here's the first one. The first one is aggressive greed. Verse 8 through 10. It says, Woe to those who join house to house, who add field to field until there is no more room, and you are made to dwell alone in the midst of the land. 
The Lord of hosts has sworn in my hearing, surely many houses shall be desolate, large and beautiful houses without inhabitant. For 10 acres of vineyard shall yield but one bath and a homer of seed shall yield but one aphath. All right, so this is describing people who are joining house to house, field to field, basically this concept of being aggressively greedy, just taking what isn't yours so that you can expand your your empire. That's what was happening in these days. Uh, It was happening through a man named King Ahab. Uh, Ahab had a man named Naboth murdered so that he could take over his vineyard. Um, He just basically wanted to continue to take all of this stuff from people. And so these were economic empire builders who were just ruthlessly taking over the property of the poor and the needy. In verse 11 through 17, we won't read it all, but we see sinful excess. These people are living for really just pleasure, sensual pleasure rather than for God. It describes people who are zealously dedicated to pursuing their sinful excess And it talks about them waking up early in the morning to run after uh, drinks. It talks about them lingering at drinking throughout all the day and then just constantly just wanting to be entertained by uh, new music and those kinds of things. The third fruit that we see is in verses 18 and 19. This is self-deceived enslavement and mocking God. Look at verse 18. It says, Woe to those who draw iniquity with cords of falsehood, who draw sin as with cart ropes. He's, he's talking about people who are enslaved to their sin. So like the analogy that's being used here is like you would have a horse tied to a cart, but they've tied themselves to a cart of iniquity. They've tied themselves to it and they're pulling it and they're just in, they think that they're enjoying it, but really they're enslaved by it. And so they have this, um, this just foolish uh, self-deceived enslavement. And then they go even further in verse 19 and they start mocking God. It says, who say, let him be quick. Let him speed his work that we may see it. Let the counsel of the Holy One of Israel draw near. Let it come that we may know it. Here we're, they're just basically calling out God for not doing what they want on their timetable. They're defying him, they're challenging him, they're questioning him. They arrogantly demand that he do what they want. Verse 20 indicts them for redefining truth. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. This is taking what is clearly revealed as true and redefining it. This is taking what God has clearly shown, right? Light is not darkness. We know that. We know that intuitively, but we can deceive ourselves and we can redefine what is true and call light darkness. That's what they were doing. They were saying that sweet things are bitter and bitter are sweet. Darkness is light. Light is darkness. Evil is good and good is evil. They've twisted and uh, morphed their own version of truth. And we see that. I mean, we see this, all these things happening in our own day as well, but, um, but not hopefully in the church. That's, you, you don't want to see it in the church. Um, verse 21, they are indicted for arrogant false wisdom. Verse 21, woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and shrewd in their own sight. 
You think you're wise, but you're only wise in your own sight. God doesn't think you're wise. You think you're wise. So you're arrogant and you are falsely clinging to wisdom. This is sin that goes all the way back to the very first sin in the Garden of Eden, right? That this desire to be made wise, to have your eyes open, to be like God. It's not, an, it's not a new problem. It's a very, very old problem. It's the heart of all sin, really. And then verse 22 and 23, the last indictment here of their fruit is what we'll call drunken, corrupt justice. Look at, look at these two. Woe, um, woe to those who are heroes at drinking wine and valiant men in mixing strong drink who acquit the guilty for a bribe and deprive the innocent of his rights. Here we're seeing in Isaiah's day that judges did not care about justice. They cared about power and um, unsavory gain. They cared about the lush life that could happen to them. So they became champion wine drinkers and they sold their services to the highest bidder. It didn't matter whether the, the person was innocent or guilty. Whoever could pay them the most would get the verdict they wanted. This is corruption. This is uh, despicable. It's one of the things that our, our nation was founded on, the desire to see this kind of thing not happen, right? Uh, now, I'm not saying that we do this perfectly by any means, but it's the ideal that we're hoping to live in. Um, it's one of the reasons why the symbol for justice in America is Lady Liberty, uh, not Lady Liberty, sorry, Lady Justice, who's personified uh, outside the Supreme Court as a blindfolded woman carrying scales and a sword. The idea is that justice is blind. It's irrespective of persons. It doesn't matter whether you're rich or poor, famous or common, that everyone should receive equal justice under the law. That's the ideal. Now, that's not always happening because we're sinners and imperfect, but that's the hope. In Isaiah's day, that wasn't happening at all. That was just, it was just blatant um, corruption of the justice system. And so what happens is God is saying, this is, these are the grapes that I'm finding in the vineyard. What, what should have produced good fruit is actually producing these things. And so we can all look at this and go, yeah, I mean, that's, that all needs to be dealt with. Right? I don't think that any of us should read this and go, oh, these poor people, God is just so mean to them. No, they, they're clearly in disobedience and rebellion against him, and they, there needs to be something that happens. And so in verse 24 through the end of the chapter, well, we're, we're not going to read all these, but essentially you can read them on your own. They describe the coming judgment from God um, by using foreign nations. That's what he's talking about. Um, in verse 26, it'll pretty much highlight for us the whole, the whole thing. He will, he, God, will raise a signal for nations far away and he will whistle for them from the ends of the earth and behold, quickly, speedily, they come. He's going to call on these Foreign nations, we know historically this was Assyria, this was Babylon, um, and, and we, we are seeing God preparing his people for the, uh, for the coming judgment. And, and it's not as if they haven't been given opportunity to repent. They're just refusing to. They don't want to. 
And so here we see that judgment coming. And you can read that as, as you have um, opportunity. But I really want to take the rest of our time going back to this issue of, of the fruit that God intends to see in his people. God uses this analogy of a vineyard. And, and that God plants this vineyard and does all the things that need to be done. He offers all of his grace, all the things that, that they um, couldn't have done themselves. He does for them in order to ideally see fruit grow in their lives. And, and this is the thing is you and I, as God's people today, are God's vineyard. We are in God's vineyard. And, and like the people of Isaiah's day, we have access to God's grace. Like them, we have all that we need to know who God is. In fact, we may be at an even greater benefit than they were. We have in our pockets Bibles at our fingertips. When, when in human history has that ever been true? Right? Up until 500 years ago, um, a little over 500 years ago, the printing press didn't even exist. There weren't even books. There were manuscripts that people who had money could have, but there were no books until 500 years ago, which I know sounds like a long time uh, to, from our point of view, but in the span of human history, 500 years is not that long. And so, for, so the printing press is a fairly new thing in human history. And then on top of that, now we have supercomputers in our pockets where we can have thousands of translations of the Bible in our pockets at our fingertips. What an amazing time we live, right? We have access to all of God's word in every possible language that we can imagine. And, and yet, what are we seeing in our, in our hearts, in our lives, in the churches around us? We're, we're not necessarily seeing the fruit of that we're not necessarily seeing the, the good fruit that God intends to grow. E- even though we're probably the most privileged people, I don't even think probably, we are the most privileged people in America, in the Western world, in, in our day. We are the wealthiest and we are the most privileged people that have ever lived on the earth. That's just historical fact. And yet, what is that, what is that really done? Has that caused us to draw near to Jesus? For some, yes. And for many, no. It's, a, it's amazing that you see the church in the Western world, Europe, America, Canada, etc., um, in decline. But the church in the global south, so Africa and South America and even parts of Asia, um, it's thriving, though they are in abject poverty and, and do not have hardly any of the blessings that we do. It's, it's humbling, and it's, it should make, give us pause to go, why, why is this happening? Well, um, it goes back to receiving the grace of God in vain. It's, it goes back to wanting God's acceptance without actually wanting to be changed by him. There's the problem. And Jesus is going to shed some light on this for us. We're going to turn to John chapter 15. And uh, this is where we're going to spend the rest of our time. Because um, 
you're going to see as we read it, it, it connects very closely to Isaiah 5 in the message that God is trying to convey to his people about the vineyard. Because um, here's the first line of John 15. This is, these are the words of Jesus. He says, I am the true vine and my father the vine dresser. I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. So, so we, we need to understand that what Jesus has in mind here is the analogy of a vineyard that God has given to his people. I don't know if he has John, uh, Isaiah rather, five in mind in particular or, or in the other places in the scripture where vineyards are used, but he's clearly in that frame of mind. He's clearly thinking about this and he's trying to bring clarity to this. See, because what happened was that the the people of the Old Testament in Isaiah's day were planted in God's vineyard, but they didn't produce any fruit. At least they didn't produce the kind of fruit that God wanted them to. And so Jesus has to come uh, onto the scene and he has to correct all of this. And so his first statement here is this, I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. This is important for us to hear because um, Jesus is saying here that he is the true vine. That's the key word, the true vine, right? And so he is not just a vine in in God's vineyard. He's the vine that is true and everything else has to grow off of. Look at what he says. Verse two, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, the father takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him He it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he's thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this, my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you that your joy may be that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. All right, so uh, Jesus is saying here something very important. He he's saying here that Old Testament Israel was not the true vine. They they were not the true vine. Jesus is the true vine. Jesus is the fulfillment of all that God is meaning to do in us. And and so here's the thing we've got to hear. None of us, not them, not us, none of us receives the grace of God with a whole heart. We can't. We're sinners. We, We just can't do it. Like God receives, 
extends his grace, we receive his grace, but none of us can extend that, receive that rather, with a whole heart. So that's why the final answer to all of this, the final answer to all of our failure is, is, is simply found in the one who said, I am the true vine. When he said that, what he meant is that he is replacing all human failure. He's replacing all of our failure and that he and Jesus alone is the one who bears fruit for God. Jesus bears fruit for God. Without him, we can't do anything. But if we abide in him, if we're connected to the vine, we will bear fruit that will last as well. See, we gotta understand that we're not the ones that bear fruit. Jesus does, and we do by attachment to him. We're, the, we're only gonna see fruit grow in our lives as we are attached and abide in him. If we're not united to Jesus, we will never see fruit grow in our lives. We will never see that which God intends for us to have in our lives actually flourish in our lives. We, Jesus says it as clearly as anyone who, who could ever say it. Without me, you can do nothing. That's pretty clear. If you want to see fruit, it cannot be isolated from Jesus. It has to be because you're attached to him. You're in him. And so let's, let's talk about what the fruit of our lives ought to be. And we don't have to wonder. The Bible tells us. Jesus tells us in John 15, in fact, he at least gives us some of it. Um, he tells us to love. In verse 12, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. We love if we're bearing fruit for God, we will see love. But it's not because we love, it's because Jesus loved and we're attached to him. See, love one another as I have loved you. We're attached to Jesus, we're abiding in Jesus, and so we see the fruit of love grow in our lives. We also see him mention the second fruit that we see in Galatians of the fruit of the Spirit. We see joy. Jesus gives us love and joy, and and Paul is going to fill in some other ones for us in Galatians 6. But we're seeing that the things that should flow from us are love for others and joy in Christ. These things cannot happen if we're not in him. Then we see in in Galatians that, that the other fruit of the Spirit are rounded out with peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Notice, it's very important to notice this. Um, Paul does not describe these as the fruits of the Spirit. It's not plural. It is the fruit, singular, of the Spirit. Meaning that the things that he's listing out for us are not individual, like apples on a tree that we get to just pick as we want, because sure, we'll take the joy all day long. We'll leave self-control on there for sure. Don't want that. Um, we, right? we, 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 don't, we don't get to play that game. We don't get to play that game. This is, these are the things that are grown in us as we abide in Jesus. 
because Jesus perfectly exemplifies all of these things. He, he is the perfect representation of all of these things. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Jesus is all of those things and, and far more. So it's him that bears fruit for God. And as we abide in him, then we see these things flow into our lives and through us. Jesus says in this that we, we have to be attached to him if we're ever going to see the fruit. If we are separated from him, we wither and die. If we are attached to him, we have life-giving fruit bearing in our lives. So let's just ask the question, some important questions. Um, As you look at your life, as you look at the fruit of your life, you need to ask yourself what that says about your relationship to Jesus. Are you abiding in him? Are you abiding in him? Are you what you actually think you are? So here's, here's the thing. We can, we can look at the list of the fruit of the spirit. We can look at these things and go, you know, I'm not measuring up to these, these particular ones. And we can play that game and go, okay, well, I guess I'm just not, I guess I don't love Jesus very much because I'm not very patient. Or I don't have, I'm not experiencing a lot of peace or I'm not very kind all the time. Listen, um, no, no one is suggesting that you have to have all these things perfectly done in your life. Jesus is the one who bears fruit for God. And Jesus is gonna grow these things in you over time, right? Nothing that you plant is gonna grow overnight, Nothing is. And if it did, that would just be crazy and mutant and freaky and you wouldn't want to eat it, right? Um, So things that are worthwhile take time and God is going to take time. So again, don't kill yourself over these things. Don't beat yourself up over these things. But you do need to genuinely evaluate your life and go, do you see any of these things? Is anything there? If absolutely nothing is there, this should indicate something to you. It should give you pause and make you wonder, am I actually abiding in him? Jesus says in verse eight, by this my father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. But this is not about just mustering up the strength to fix ourselves He's already made it clear that the only way that's going to happen is if we abide in him. So the solution to growing and bearing fruit is not about trying to muster the strength to do it, but rather about drawing near to Jesus, drawing near to him, being in him, being attached to him and allowing his fruit to grow in you. We can't do it on our own. Apart from him, we can do nothing. And so here's, here's the thing. We, this kind of a sermon could take one of two directions in our hearts that are wrong. The first one is to look at the list of the fruit of the Spirit and go, you know what, yeah, I'm doing pretty good. Pat yourself on the back and then repent. Um, because apart from me, you can do nothing. So the, the looking at your, the fruit of your life and go, I'm doing pretty good. 
shouldn't lead you to that. It should lead you to only by Jesus' grace am I doing good. It's only because of him. It's all because of Jesus. So that's, that's the one danger. The other danger is to the opposite end of that and go, I'm not seeing much fruit at all, so I, I must just be completely hopeless here. No, not necessarily. It's more nuanced than that. There could be that the fruit that God is growing in you is taking time that may take longer than you anticipate or want. But it doesn't mean it's not there. You've got you've to discern in your heart where you are with Jesus. And if you're not seeing fruit born in your life, then, then you should ask him for his help in those things. Either way, the solution isn't to be proud of ourselves or to be dejected. It is to draw near to Jesus today. Whether we're growing or whether we're seeming to wither, we need to draw near to Jesus because he's the only hope and solution that we have. We've, we've got to be abiding in him and he in us so that we bear fruit for God, not, not trying to muster the strength on our own. The problem of Isaiah 5 was that the people in Isaiah's day had all of the benefits of God's grace, but they didn't have any heart to actually love him or abide in him. And so in that sense, they weren't attached to the true vine. But in Jesus, as we come to Jesus, we can be attached to the true vine, the one who truly bears fruit for God because he is God. And, and in that, we will see the fruit of our lives grow. We've, we've got to get there. We've got to recognize that. It's about being attached to Jesus and that's where the fruit will come. So let me pray for us. Father God, we thank you for your empowering grace. We thank you that you have loved us, that you have drawn us to you, that you have attached us to you so that we would be transformed people. We pray, God, that we wouldn't take the grace of God in vain, just wanting your acceptance, but not wanting your transformation. Would you grow fruit in our lives? Would you bear fruit in this church? But Lord, we pray that as you do that, that we would find humility in that to give you all the glory. And it's in your name we pray, amen.